Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Really competing against yourself 90% of the time. It's a characteristic of your personality that you want to keep challenging yourself to do new things. And we'd be naive to say that it's, it is a healthy sport all around. Simone Biles goes out in Tokyo and executes the exact routine that Komanechi did in 76. What would she score? So welcome to our special on gymnastics as we uh, looked at all the smaller sports that we see at Olympic Games in Tokyo this year. And today we have a very special guest with us. It's going to take us through some of the uh, intricacies of uh, gymnastics. And we've got Helen Bain, who is a gymnastics coach and athlete. Uh, she's uh, somebody that has been very involved in the sport for many, many years. Lots of knowledge in there. But she's also worked in, as a biokineticist. She's also worked as a, as a biomechanist um, and lots of different aspects that feed into that knowledge of gymnastics. And uh, I think for Ross and I, talking to somebody like Helen, as you said in the intro, it's quite nice to watch the sport with a bit more knowledge than and we had. And I certainly learned a huge amount in the 50 minutes that we got to chat to her. Mm, so did I. And I mean, I've watched the Olympic uh, gymnastics competitions every game since 96. And for me, it's certainly one of the three centerpieces. You know, you have track and field, you have swimming and gymnastics. But having watched so many Olympic gymnastics competitions, I'm almost embarrassed to say, I don't really know what's going on. And certainly not the way that Helen sees it as a biomechanist and a coach and an athlete who's done it herself. And so when, when, when your mind is suddenly opened up and you appreciate that a person is doing something that is both physiologically and technically borderline impossible for every other human in the world, that's when you're watching Simone Biles, then hopefully people start to get much more out of the Olympic gymnastics competitions than they otherwise would have. So, yeah, I feel enlightened as a consequence of this conversation. Well, if you mean to be enlightened and know more about what you're watching in Tokyo, here is our interview with Helen Bain. So welcome to the Science of Sport podcast, Helen. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. And as you will see in the next half an hour or so, um, it's fair to say that Ross and I are not particularly good when it comes to the details of gymnastics, which is exactly why we have you on the podcast today. So I'm going to kick off uh, the discussion, and hopefully that will lead to many other questions that we have around Simone Biles, uh, probably the most famous gymnast in the world right now. Is she really uh, the greatest that's ever lived? Uh, yes, short answer. Uh, and I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that could uh, could disagree with that. You would uh, probably find some people that say she's pushing on the greatest athlete that's ever lived. Um, that might be a little bit more controversial. So why do you say that? Well, I think, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, from a gymnastics point of view, she's, she's never lost uh, an all around competition since uh, any all around competition she's entered since I think it's 2013, that includes the world and Olympic championships in that time. 
Um, she has a number of skills named after her, four in total now, could become five soon. Um, skills named after gymnasts doesn't necessarily make them the best gymnasts that ever lived, uh, but the ones, uh, her, in her case specifically, those skills are uh, by virtue of the, their difficulty, um, you know, really pushing the limits of performance. So they're not just original, they're just, they're supremely difficult. So she does these incredibly difficult um, skills with very consistent uh, performances and, and it makes her pretty much unbeatable. You know, she, she even has mistakes in, in certain competitions, but she's still so, so far ahead of the rest of the competitors. Um, so within Can you give us an example of clear. a skill? Mm. Yeah, can you can you give us an example? Like we're watching now the gymnastics. What's her What's her best event? And don't say all of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like best floor. event probably floor and vault. Um, so I've seen I've seen some footage. I'm sure many listeners have seen going around on Twitter of these super slow mos, mm. and you just look at this and you think this is this is a this is like defying physics. Yeah. So we're watching the floor now, and she's going to do something that is just going to make the non-existence crowd breath go away. What What is that thing? Yeah. And the thing I always wonder is why can she do it? Was it her imagination to create it or was it her physiology or her biomechanics both to enable it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it must be exactly. both, obviously. So, but so on the floor, the, the major impressive move that she'll do is, is called a triple twisting double back. So um, at the end of the tumbling run, which starts off with a round off, backflip, and then the final skill at the end of the tumbling pass, she'll do two backward somersaults and three twists in the air. Um, no other female gymnast has competed that, although I know one of her teammates is training it, um, and only a handful of men have done mm. it. So, um, and, and the question of, of how, she, how she's able to do these things that no one else has done before is a combination of her physical capacity. So she's obviously got incredible capacity for strength and, and power production. But to me, it's more what sets her apart is her, her technical proficiency is so, so exceptional. Um, because when you're when you're operating at that uh, limit, that level of difficulty, the margin for error is almost nothing. Um, so she has to mm. execute things so perfectly in order to get these uh, get these skills right. So for example, you know, if you break down a little bit further, if you were going to do just a single standing somersault in the air compared to a, a double back somersault, you need more time in the air, you need greater yeah. angular momentum to complete that skill, right? And so the mar margin for error, if you're doing a simple back somersault and you get a little bit wrong, uh, you've got room to, to adjust and, and still land safely. And the harder the skills get, the less margin for error there is and, and the more perfect you have to be in, for example, the takeoff parameters to, to be able to execute that. And she does that. That's what she does well. Because it's interesting because when you watch these super slow motions, and I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about or one of, uh, you think it's impossible that she's going to bring this around and rotate enough in the last however many milliseconds it is to, to land it. And so that is a consequence of... A, the, the height she gets, which is a function of power, and maybe we can explore like how much power that takes, but it's it's also the, and I mean, from a technical perspective, what goes into creating that angular momentum? Yeah, so it's funny you say that, because it, it, when you hear what she's going to do, you think it's going to be impossible, And we, but when I watch those super slow-mos, kind of with a coaching slash biomechanics eye, mm. I don't for one split second think she's not going to make it. 
I marvel that she's able to do it. But you know, from the moment of takeoff and the timing that she executes those movements, um, it, it's clear that she's she's going to make it, which is not always the same for for the other other gymnasts. Um, so how do you generate though, like the when you when you're doing these aerial movements, it's all about the the takeoff because once you're in the air, number one, your flight path that you're going to travel is set. So um, the part that yeah. your center of mass is going to travel, you can't change that after you're in the air. All you can do is change how much you're going to rotate, somersault or twist or, or whatever. So at the point of takeoff, that flight path is determined by how fast you're traveling and the angle you're traveling at. Um, also the height. Right. So if you take off from a higher height and land lower, that gives you more time in the air, but that's not really that relevant in, in gymnastics. So it's, mm. it's how fast you, how fast an angle you're traveling at takeoff. And then the amount of rotation you've got, so angular momentum is is also set once you're in the air and le- until something else, uh, an external force is going to act on the person. Like when they land, they're going to now slow down their rotation. So mm. the angular momentum that you've got is fixed, the total amount, but you can vary the speed of your rotation by changing your body position. Yes. So if you're in a straight laid out, is that is that the te- is that the technical side? In other words, when you talk about her technical ability, the the rotation, the speed of the rotation, is that what you would then define as technical ability? Yeah, exactly. And what she's doing leading up to takeoff. Uh, so to to generate that perfect takeoff position, that's going to be the direction and the speed she's travelling at. So the lead up skills of the round or backflip into takeoff is also technically really important, although they're simple skills. Um. So she gets that part right first. Then once she's in the air and she's got this amount of angular momentum to kind of play with, she manipulates her body so precisely and so that mm. she either increases the speed of rotation in a somersault, increases the speed of the rotation in the twist. Um, so one really nice example, I use this in teaching all the time, her, her other skill on floor that's named after her is she does a double layout, back somersault, and right at the last minute does this half twist and sort of lands facing opposite direction. Um, and it's, it's beautiful to watch because she does this somersaulting motion in a straight body laid out position twice. And then right at the last minute, she drops her arm, her one arm to one side, which shifts some of that angular momentum from the somersault motion into the twisting around her own axis and, and then lands half half a turn facing the other direction. Mm. It's, it's beautiful. This this concept you're talking about now, like just to try, try and help listeners conceptualize, if you, if you ever sit on a rotating chair and you spin it around and you then tuck your arms to your yeah. chest and as you hug yourself, you'll see that you accelerate and if you then put your arms out like a bird coming into land, you'll slow down. Have you played like this, Mike? Yes. I remember in physics. Um, first Not very year, gracefully, though. First year of university physics, you, you can do this, and it shows you this concept <laughs> Helen's talking about. And also, Winter Olympics, ice skating, you see it really done. When they're doing their, their spin, I don't know if that's not the right word, but they will change their speed of rotation enormously by just changing the, the orientation of the arms. It's quite amazing, actually, to look yeah, at. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. when we, I mean, when you, I know that we're sort of maybe drilling down as far as we can and, and using um, Simone Bars as an example of this. If you had to do some sort of basic tests, for instance, compare her flexibility to a another world-class athlete, compare her ability to be able to jump over a height, 
is she is she more flexible is she stronger or is she a combination of all of those things in other words do they do tests on somebody like her and 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 to extrapolate that do they do tests then going right down the chain of abilities where you can do a baseline test to say this person can jump over two meters from a standing start and therefore they have an ability to be able to be a good gymnast i mean is there a way of testing that yeah, it, it's it's interesting because the, the that type of testing you're talking about is is slightly it's 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 a bit different in gymnastics to the way it's done in a lot of other sports. You know, uh, other sports will be a set you know procedures uh, that are used across different types of sporting codes. So whether you're a rugby player, a soccer player, a tennis player, you'll all be tested on a a counter movement jump. So stand in one place, jump as high as you can, and that will give you some measure of, of some of these qualities. That type of testing is is relatively um, uncommon in gymnastics. They tend to be more um, kind of specialized or sport specific, if I call it that. Like functional, kind of gymnastics fun- functional. Function. Eh? So they will uh. test you to do to see like how many pull ups can you do, and it's and it's all very much body weight um, specific. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how many pull ups can you do to to fatigue? Um, you know, leg lifts, hanging on a bar, uh, rope climbs for time, things like that are kind of the typical testing battery in gymnastics. Um, so it's kind of difficult to compare. Like, I don't even, I wouldn't even be able to say, yes, she's, you know, uh, strong, can jump higher or further than, than another athlete in another sport because those testing methods are really quite different. Mm. Mm. So in other words, she's, without, I know you haven't tested her, but ideally, you could hypothesize that she is stronger, faster, technical. She's she's combining all of those extraordinary skills into one almost perfect gymnastics package. Yep, I think uh, I think that's fair to yeah. say. Because I suppose the tendency, or certainly my inclination, is to try and maybe be reductionist in the same way that I'd say a runner has high VO2 max efficiency yes, economy that's what I'm and lactate threshold, yeah, yeah. and there's a limit set by one of those things. I suppose... That is to some extent true in gymnastics is that if you don't have sufficient strength or power, if you don't have technical ability or whatever goes into creating this, the skill execution, you're also limited by them. But it's not as linear as it might be in some other sports. Yeah, and, and I think that's this is one of the things that's changed and, and is continuing to change in the sport over, over the years. There's definitely more an emphasis on strength and power training and there is sort of more um, mm. general type of training uh, in those fields kind of coming into the sport so so the athletes now are starting to do like Olympic lifts as part of uh, part of tra- strength training which, which was very very rare in the in the past I was actually listening to someone recently um, saying how in particular the Chinese women's team have employed somebody you know, specifically to focus on lower body strength and power development because the rules of the sport have sort of demanded that you that's what you need to develop in order to perform at this level with the difficulty um, requirements to, to win these days. And Ellen, that, that evolution is quite interesting because that's driven in part by, let's call it natural pursuit of the Olympic motto, faster, higher, stronger, but it's also as I understand, been driven by the way they've changed the scoring to actually reward athletic performance execution maybe a little bit more because most people will, if you say gymnastics at the Olympics, they say, Nadia Comaneci, 1972. Look that up and that's a perfect 10. There were many perfect 10s. 
that is an almost unrecognizable sport compared to what you'll see in Tokyo. And I'd like to, maybe we can spend some time talking about A, technology, and then B, actually how just the, the scoring changes have driven the sport in a different direction that maybe rewards athleticism instead of artistic elements, hasn't replaced them, but it, would that be fair to say? Uh, yes, definitely. I think so. The Let's start with a scoring system. Um, you're right. So the, the perfect 10, as it was back then in the 70s, or even all the way up into the, the early 2000s, no longer exists because um, there was a move to change from that. I guess kind of if you watch the, the gymnastics in the in the through the 90s, especially the early 90s, every single gymnast was getting scoring a 9.95. Uh, and mm. and all the routines kind of look very similar. Um, so I guess, I guess the sport got to a point where the difficulty levels were very similar across the board. Um, execution was very good. And uh, I guess the FIG decided they needed to change it up. Um, so in 2006... FIG being the International Federation, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So 2006, yeah. I think it was, yeah. was when the, the, the new scoring system came in that separated out the difficulty score and the execution score. So now mm. you still... The perfect 10 sits in only in execution, right? And then there's a separate right. uh, difficulty score and the two of them get added to give together to give you the total so the scores you'll see that the final scores on each apparatus in the olympics will be like in the 13s 14s 15s um and are they weighted equally difficulty and execution 50 percent each no, well they're, they're weighted equally sort of but uh the, the execution score starts from 10 and gets deductions from that whereas the difficulty right. score starts from from zero and adds up so they so typically your difficulty scores you'll see the top athletes doing will be like between five point yeah, low fives to low mid sixes. So yeah, so like a Simone Biles will on average have like a difficulty score of around six point two across the four apparatus. Um so And sorry, is that is that then made up? So let's say it's six point two and it's in the floor where uh, the so so again we're going super basic here. The floor routine has a time limit. Is that right? Uh, yes. Nin and ninety. Is seconds. there a minimum requirement? So in those ninety seconds, is there a minimum requirement that the that the gymnast must perform a set number of uh, elements? Yeah. So they each. And is each? Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Yeah. Cool. So each apparatus it. has like. Um, certain requirements that someone has to do like you have to do a certain number of uh, flight elements a certain number of dance elements so leaps and twists and, and spins type of thing uh, you have to do a certain number of different combinations and um, that if I stand to be corrected I think if you if you meet all those requirements you, you end up with a difficulty rating of two and then your top eight women's top eight uh, men I think it's their top 10 when i say top the most difficult skills that you do mm. those all add up to give you your total difficulty rating and your so your the most each skill that a gymnast does has got a difficulty rating from a to j mm -hmm. and a is worth 0 0.1 b 0 0.2 all the way up to j that's worth 1.0 yeah. So you're, if you do a J skill, you'll get a, a 1.0 added to your difficulty score. 
Um, and, then, and if you fail to execute that skill, do you lose the difficulty allocation or do you only lose on the execution side of the of the final score? Uh, it, it can be a bit of a gray area. So if if you execute it in such a way that it changes its format, so let's say you're going to say you're going to do a double pike right. somersault and you bend your knees and it turns into a double tuck, you'll get the difficulty for the double tuck. But if it's like a, uh-huh, okay. if you just have an error on the landing of the double pike, you'll get the difficulty value for the double pike, but you'll get a deduction from your execution score. Okay, so you'll get perfect execution for the double tuck, but the difficulty score comes down. Or do you lose execution and difficulty if you change this element midway through it? Well, I mean, yeah, if you, if you change it midway through and it's noticeable, it'll, you'll get a deduction. But the judges, ex- okay. with the exception of vaults, the judges don't know what you plan to do. Well, they've, they've got an idea. Um, but That was my next question, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, so, yeah. So you can do whatever you want. When you get up on apparatus, they will judge and give you the difficulty value for whatever they whatever you actually do. Um, on vault, you do have to mm. nominate um, what, what vault you're going to perform. But... Um, yeah, the, at, these days actually it's changed um, over a few cycles. If you change what you're going to do, you you just get marked on the on what you actually do. Um, in the past, you, like they think if, at one stage you could even get a zero if you did the vault, the different vault from what you nominated. That's changed. And judging wise, a few questions. One is, do these judges have the benefit of slow motion replays or must they assign their score in real time? And then secondly, how, how many are there? And it used to be that they used to take your your score from, I don't know how many it was, and then they used to take out the highest and the lowest. And I think that was done in part to try and address certain corruption and bias issues. Yeah. Do, does it still work that way? Uh, good question, Ross. I'm not actually sure how that's changed. I know that um, I think there's nine judges on this full panel. Two, I think it's two mm. that d- determine the difficulty score and five that do the execution. There may well be top and bottom thrown out as well. I'm not sure. But the other mm. two is actually the review panel. This is what you're talking about now. So I, I, the initial um, adjudication is just on, on real-time assessment, but there can be a review if, if the coach uh, or the gymnast feels that they you haven't given them full value for what they've done. Um, mm. Then they will look at video replays to say, you know, uh, did you actually make it all the way around in your triple twist? Um, the judge might say no, it's right. only a two and a half, but you can kind of say no. I, I think I should get credit with a triple. Because that's a source of some controversy. I know that um, I don't know much about the technical side, but I do know that there's there's quite an interesting study. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Helen, where uh, some researchers went back and they looked at decades worth of the Olympics and they said, okay, at the Olympic Games there are three categories of sport. There are the sports that are entirely objective, like running and weightlifting. There's no subjectivity involved. You either run 9.75 or you run 9.82 and you come second. Then there are sports that are entirely subjectively scored, and gymnastics was like this, certainly in the past, still to a large degree. And then there are some that are determined objectively but subjectively influenced, like football and hockey, where it's a referee decision. And what they found is that home advantage makes a very large difference to the subjectively scored ones. And there are some pretty significant controversies in gymnastics where home athletes have certainly benefited from crowds. And if I was a Japanese gymnast, I would be most unhappy about the fact that I have no crowd support in Tokyo because that was worth points. Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, we. I think you see it, especially there's a bit of controversies in, in gymnastics when pe- when there's like home uh, competitions. So not necessarily home mm. advantage, but you know, at the U.S. nationals, 
well, the Russian nationals, you tend to see these inflated scores coming out and everyone around the world gets very excited that this athlete is scoring so high. And then people say, well, mm. calm down a little bit because you tend that home scores tend to be more lenient of, you know, giving credit for the, for the skills um, that might not uh, receive the same credit uh, with an international judging panel. Huh. And just last question on the scoring. The, for the floor, for instance, that routine is submitted to the judging panel in advance of the actual element or the performance. Um, I'm not actually sure if they do that these days, to be honest. Um, what is really interesting on, on, judge, on the judging, um, people could look us up, is is that the, the judges use this like hieroglyphics type of coding system to, to note mm -hmm. something down. So when you see, a, if you see a screenshot of a score sheet, it really looks like hieroglyphics. Every single skill has got this little symbol um, mm. So, um, yeah, I'm not actually sure if they submit that, what they plan to do to the judges anymore. Um, they have done in the past, but I'm not mm. sure if that's still the case. It would make it a lot easier for the but judges they, to write down the hieroglyphics. Yeah, to have a, a script they can um, evaluate the performance against. Yeah. But uh, the, the thing that obviously is submitted is Simone Biles now has worked on these skills that you mentioned that she uniquely can do. She's obviously done that in training and then said, I'm going to submit this to somebody mm -hmm. and they are going to recognize this as an official uh, move, which has a difficulty score. That That's obviously a formal process of submit application and evaluation and so on, yeah? Yes, that's right. And because... Um, yeah, the judges need to know what to do with it when they do something that's not in not in the code of points. So, for example, mm. that's that's kind of pending at the moment. Um, you might have people might have seen in the media that at at a local US competition a couple of months ago, she competed a new vault, um, which is a Yurchenko double pike. Um, that wasn't that's not in the code of points. So she had to apply for a rating for that. It was given a rating of I believe six point six, which is the highest in, in the women's program um, but it's it won't officially become recognized or won't officially become named after until she does it in competition successfully in a, a world or olympic competition so that might happen hmm. this week tell us how you figure out what athletes are better at certain disciplines in other words if you've got people that are very good i know that you've got the individual competition that includes all the different disciplines but there are obviously specialists in those different disciplines where you have the best in the vault and the best on the floor are certain athletes designed and how are they designed differently in terms of their physiology for those different disciplines? In other words, what is what makes a good vaulter, what makes a good floor athlete? Yeah, so so typically, you know, you, you might want to classify the gymnastics to kind of the shorter, stockier, more muscular build and, and the, the gymnasts that are slightly taller, uh, slightly leaner build. And normally the shorter, more muscular build is, is tends to be the stronger vaulters and floor workers because of the tumbling and you know tumbling and vaulting uh, reliance on power, power and um, you know, aerial rotations being shorter than advantage. Yeah. Uh, whereas the yeah, the lever arm or the yeah yeah, yeah. so the moment of inertia of a shorter person yeah. in a layout right. position is is smaller than someone that's a taller a, a taller person. Um, and then the taller, leaner athletes tend to be stronger on bars and beam, uh, where there's lesser demand on, on that power and somersaulting um, executions. And also where, you know, gymnastics speak, you'll talk about lines, um, and then that sort of rewarded the aesthetic look of a, of a long, lean line mm. with, with increased flexibility 
um, which tends to go hand in hand with, with this body type, is rewarded heavily on bars and beam. Um, yeah, so that, that's sort of probably how it breaks down. So in other words, if you have somebody that is a specialist, for instance, on the beam, um, they don't. Do they all compete in the individual as well as the as well as the individual disciplines? In other words, if I am competing, do, do I, can I just do the vault, or do I have to do the vault and the individual across all the disciplines? Yeah. So, so they, it is possible to just do one discipline or selected disciplines. Um, the format at this year's games has got, uh, you know, there's a team. So there's team competition, which is the sum total of multiple athletes from the same country that contribute to the team score. There's an individual all around. And is that is that across the is that across all the disciplines yes. in there for the team competition? Yes, and that. Right. But yeah. you can have different athletes um, kind of combining uh, on the different apparatus. So for the, in the team event. They'll be uh, in the team final. Each each country has got a team of four athletes, um, and in the final, they can nominate three of those athletes to compete in each event. They can be different on different apparatus, and all three of those scores count. Um, uh. There can be another two athletes from a country that are not part of the four-person team, but are just competing as individuals, and they can be doing all around or just certain events but all of this is sort of decided or the, the qualification round is really important so on the first day of competition um all athletes will compete the the four athletes that are nominated for the team for that country will all compete and the top eight out of the 12 countries will go through to the team final um the top 24 individuals with their four apparatus scores combined will qualify for the individual all-around competition and the top eight on each apparatus from the qualifying day will go into the final for just that apparatus and with the exception okay. that there's a limit of two individuals per country and on those individual events so if we take simone biles again the aforementioned biles she's going to be in the qualifying she'll do basically every apparatus she is likely to qualify for the individual final on all four uh, all, all the apparatus sorry and she's likely to qualify for the all-round, and she'll compete in the team final. So she's got a busy week ahead of her. Yeah, she definitely will. Whereas the, think- yeah, whereas the specialists are going to just do one apparatus in qualifying, hope to make top eight, and then come back to win a medal in that apparatus the, the night or two nights after. Yeah, exactly. Mm, okay. So you're saying that she will potentially win gold in the team mm-hmm. in the individual across all the disciplines and yep. in all of the individual disciplines themselves she's look i think she's unlikely to win uh each one of the apparatus of vault bars beam and floor separately uh, i think she's a good chance mm-hmm. on vault and and floor um possibly on beam anything can happen in, on the day if, if she's definitely got a very difficult routine but um yeah consistency and, and risk is an issue always on beam for everybody um, and bars she's not the strongest i mean there's, there's actually even a chance she might not be the second best from the u.s team um, and in fact um mm. she the vaults on that u.s team has a bit, been a bit controversial as well because their two individuals are also very strong uh, vaulters so um but yeah i'd, I'd be very surprised if if Biles isn't in that vault final well, that explains it quite well. I mean, it actually leads me on to another subject, which I've always been quite fascinated to talk to somebody in this space. 
when we watch gymnastics, particularly when you watch young gymnasts, you know, who are probably peaking at 13, 14, 15, and you see the risks that they need to take. So I imagine when you're going for a complicated and even at a very basic level, if you're running flat out down a, a runway, hitting a, a springboard and then jumping onto a vault, that the number of accidents that must happen on those apparatus, whether it's the beam where you fall badly, must be extraordinary. I'd like to ask you, how do you encourage young gymnasts to, to have the ability to, to take those risks? And how do you mitigate serious injury? Because they can be quite catastrophic as we've, you just have to YouTube gymnastics injuries and there are hundreds of videos on this. Yeah. So how do you build confidence in, in athletes and particularly young girls who are probably 13, 14, 15? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a fascinating skill development journey, right? And uh, it's it's repetition after repetition of basic drills, you know, right from day one as a gymnast, and you're learning to do a forward roll and a handstand properly, and then gradually building up the complexity on each of these skills. Uh, so, so that's the one aspect. Um, the other aspect is the, the physical conditioning around it. So you, you know you train these body positions and these shapes that you um, that you have the strength, the mobility to get into these shapes, and then um, that in combination with with the technical drills, which in good stead. Um, but there's also plenty of it's, it's about progression. So progression, for example, you don't you don't start the first time you do a new skill. It's not on the the competition beam. You know there's there's beams that are just. 10 centimeters off the floor, so there's a lower element of risk. And putting padding on the mm. equipment, um, spotting by the coaches who are there to take you through slowly through through different skills. Um, equipment such as um, like a, what do you call this, like a trapeze type of system almost, where you've got a, a band around your waist on on elastics that helps you in the air and you can uh. feel the somersaults um, bar on bars. Uh, there's a system where you kind of strap your hands onto the bar when you're learning mm. you know, giant swings and things like that. So there's lots of assistive technology, spotting modifications that, that gradually take you step by step to build up to these complex moves. Okay. And so, I mean, and so when do you, I mean, there are obviously occasions when despite all that as assistive technologies, there are going to be some bad falls and accidents and mm. probably some broken bones and torn ligaments do you just get them back on the horse as quickly as possible i mean what is what is the mental aspect of getting a young athlete to go you, you need to you've fallen you've had a bad fall you've you got to get back on onto that, uh, that apparatus as soon as possible yeah it's tough i mean and it's it's very i think it's very individualized you know so obviously every athlete will experience that in a different way um and and come out of it with different attitude um, in terms of fear of, of going back and repeating it. Um, others might be of the mindset that they, you know, they, they do actually just want to go and overcome that and, and go for it again. So it's very individualized. Um, and so, so the approach would be different to everybody going back to basics, building up again to build up that confidence. Yeah. It's uh, it's not an easy, not an easy one. And is it often a defining moment in the progression of a gymnast, whether they, because they inevitably they will fall. Is that what defines whether they progress and continue to have the the the, the bravery side of it that keeps them challenging themselves? Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's a good point. It's it's a 
it's a characteristic of your personality that you want to keep challenging yourself to do new things. And it's very much, I mean, I've always found it to be, um, as much as there's like competition and podiums and medals, it's really, you're really competing against yourself 90% of the time um, because, because you've, you've got to be the one that gets up there and does the difficult and often scary things. Um, and then you, the results, the judges, you know, take care of themselves. I suppose like, I mean, it's so difficult for us even, or so, actually let me speak for myself, for me to uh, put myself in the mind of a gymnast. I mean, like I can think a downhill mountain biker. Yeah. The appetite, <laughs> the appetite to accept risk probably determines the level you might reach. Because at some point you actually say, you know what, I just cannot go any, I just can't take the, the risks that'll knock two seconds off my time. And so that's why I'm going to come 15th instead of top three. I don't know. So I suppose it must be like that for all sports. But I guess what I'm asking is, does a gymnast standing at the end of the runway running up to the vault, they're not afraid. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No, they shouldn't be. Do you think that? <laughs> um, at, at I mean, at that point, so like if I was to ask a gymnast, like, what are your concerns? They're, they're not fearful. No, no, not if, not if once they've decided this is the yeah. skill I'm going to do in this competition right mm. now, there, sh there shouldn't be fear there at all. Um, during the learning process, there may be, and, and that's where these yeah. things like, well, let's you know scale it back a bit, do some more with spot, do some more with a with a mat there for safety um, mm. to work through that fear because no, you can't be you can't be afraid when you when you're out on the. Do you remember we before. asked. Remember the first, we, we interviewed Gary Kirsten and the first question we asked him is when you're standing at the MCG on Boxing Day and Brett Lee is trying to knock your helmet off your head with a cricket ball, are you scared? And he said, no, I'm scared of failing mm. and being embarrassed and going out, but I'm not physically afraid. And I would imagine that's the characteristic, right? But I will say this, is that one of the fascinating psychologies in sport is when an athlete fails in competition and they fall off the bar or the beam and they have to continue. Yeah. And then you see, you can act, you can actually sometimes see confidence leaving this person's body. They've yeah. just lost it. And uh, that, that's, that's a really interesting insight that you can visibly see confidence evaporate. Definitely, and I think you, yeah. you know, in a situation like that, there's a, a def, like a defining moment, I think you said just now, in, in another context, you know, you, you fall, yes, you're gonna lose a, a large deduction from your execution for, score for that but you've got an opportunity to do the rest as well as you can and not not make things worse and potentially still you know finish top five mm. and whatever and the, what the mind does in that space of going oh i've blown it i'm done or that was a mistake let me do the best i can going forward that's that's something that's really interesting and and, and, and something that's mm. coached you know you try and try and prepare for those situations as well so that the gymnasts do what do the best they can I remember one situation, sorry, in the Sydney Olympics in 2000, they, they set the vault at mm. the wrong height. Um, I think the vault, I was reading up on this, the vault's meant to be 120 centimeters off the ground, and they, sorry, 125, and they set it at 120. And in the warm-ups, all the athletes were failing to land their jumps. 
And the coaches said, oh, it must be nerves. It must be the occasion getting to them. And then the favorite was a, a, a Russian called Svetlana Korkina. And I remember, I remember this actually. Um, and she did this vault and she landed on her knees yeah. because she just, that five centimeters <laughs> was, was enough of a difference that she couldn't finish the skill. Yeah. And everyone was stunned. And eventually an Aussie gymnast went to them and said, you know what, something's wrong with this vault. And sure enough, they tested it and it was too low. Yeah, I and Corkina, uh, Corkina didn't recover from that. She couldn't. She couldn't. Even that wasn't her fault. She couldn't put it out of her mind. And they gave them the opportunity to jump again. She said, "No, I'm done." Sure. Mm. Yeah, it was a disaster. I, mean, how I often can't have, believe that happened. Have, does that does that happen often, or is that a really rare occurrence? <laughs> no, that's the one only time I've, I know of it in a in a major event. It was a huge disaster. Mm. Sure. I, I, always th I always think, I mean, maybe you can give us a bit of an insight into what the gymnastics community see in this space. Now, I mean, when, when we were growing up and there was always these stories about, you know, the Russian athletes and, and the Eastern Bloc athletes who were, they didn't perform well and the Chinese athletes, they'd be sent to the salt mines. And there was a, you know, a lot of young girls were put into Jeez. positions where they were, you know, there was a sign that there was almost some level of abuse going on in terms Oof. of pushing these athletes to the limit when they were so young. Is this sport healthier in terms of that now oh, compared wow. to what it was in the 80s, 90s, maybe? Maybe on the physical side, but gymnastics has got the biggest scandal in sports history hanging it over does, it. It does, yes. Well, it's, it's, I don't want to get into that, but I'm yeah. talking more specifically about the physical the physical yeah. um, pressure being put on the, the young athletes because they are relatively young from a mature aspect and an emotional aspect, but they are physically at their prime when they're mm. mid-teens, aren't they? Right. So, I mean... I think it has improved in certain certain uh, environments and certain situations. Um, you know, there used to be unhealthy like unhealthy weighing practices and and things like that. Not that that doesn't still happen, but there's more of an awareness about um, you know the physiology behind diets and strength and training that that in, in a more advanced program would not be um, you know applied. In, in, the, in a negative way, but it definitely still happens. And and uh, Ross mentioned it now, you know, the, the sexual abuse scandal in the US has been massive and that's, that's um, yeah. I think we're gonna still hear a lot more coming out of that. But in through the through that process of, of the, that sexual abuse scandal coming out, um, gymnasts have also been speaking out about general, general um, yeah, physical and, and mental and emotional abuse that they've received through the mostly through like the 90s early 2000s but even even some that are more recent um, and not limited to the usa that some of the i think the british gymnasts um there's been a bit of in the media of, of british uh, british gymnasts speaking out about it as well so yeah i mean i think we'd be naive to say that it's it is a healthy sport all around i think there's a long way to go and uh, and i think that the the stories coming out and the, the, especially the female gymnasts, current female gymnast sp standing up and, and speaking out against it is, is really key. And hopefully that will continue to improve the situation because I don't think it's, it's that healthy yeah. yet. The thing is though, like, isn't it Helen the case that um, gymnastics is a sport where you do mature and peak very young. And so the authorities have imposed age limits uh, on the sport to try and to some extent mitigate that. but. If you work it backwards from even an even a peak age in in the early 20s and maybe you can speak about what that age of peak is in a moment you you still have to start very young yeah and it's going to be the moment you start working with very young people especially girls 
and the the, phys- the the demands on a gymnast are so enormous. Maybe also you can tie into it a little bit on how many hours a week are they actually practicing and training. It's it's probably very difficult to do to do in a healthy way. Yeah, it, it is. It is extremely difficult balance just to to fit in those those physical training hours right throughout your childhood teenage years i mean mm. on the age issue yeah it's, it's really interesting I, i've read that apparently this is the first time that the average age of the female gymnast is over 20 i think it's close to 21 um, in this mm. games oh. um you know throughout the 90s it was probably in the 16 17s and it's gradually increased so so that's um that's interesting what's the minimum age the minimum is 16. So, yeah. so they, they changed the minimum age from 15 to 16. Uh, I think it was also in the mid nineties, uh, maybe 2000, um, mm. to try and encourage, you know, longevity of careers and things. Um, but, you know, so we're not, but at the moment we're not sitting with an average age of 17 because of that change. We, it's gotten progressively older and older, which yeah. is interesting. And, and I actually think that's not so much to do with the, the age restriction change, but to do with the demands of the, you know, the scoring system, the, right. because difficulty is so highly rewarded now, um, but at the same time as good execution, um, it's, I think it's, it's taking longer and longer. So athletes can continue to develop more and more difficult skills later on into the career. You can't teach a gymnast to do the triple twisting double back that Biles is doing at the age of 13. You know, those, it's that progression, that skill progression we talked about and the physical years of physical training progression does take time. So, so I think actually the, the, the judging and the scoring system is also helping to, to increase the, the average age of the competitors. Um, but you did right, Ross, that, you know, that does mean that there's the intense training is still happening through as in a, at a very young mm. age. And, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of number of hours and things, you're probably looking at easily 30, 35 hours a week, um, from the age of 12, 13, 14 and up, Whoa. um, often two <laughs> sessions, you know, two sessions a day, which at the same time as someone is trying to go to school. Uh, these are not, you know, they're not full-time athletes um, trying to prepare for this this life and this career. And it means, you know, the families put a lot on the line for this um, because of the, the, you know, the hours away from home, they don't, you know, get school holidays away with, with families. Um, and so that's where I think some of the, the tendencies towards the physical and mental abuse on the extreme side or just the physical and mental pressure on these young girls to to stick with the sports um, uh, and that type of thing. It's a, it's a fine line. Hmm. And I guess to, to some extent, I mean, gymnastics is a bit, it, it's not a sport. It's a bit like uh, like ballet in many ways. It's hard on the young athletes. There's not necessarily a massive financial reward at the end of it either, is there? No. There aren't many no. professional gymnasts making lots of money here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, not the few and far between that will make a career out of gymnast, gymnastics. My final question, and I'm sure Ross maybe has a couple of others before we finish, but if you could just give us a bit of a preview of what we were likely to see in Tokyo, are there sort of themes that people can watch for in terms of the the, the routines that people are doing and maybe give us an idea of the countries that we should be looking out for and and, um, who are likely to be surprises in that? Yeah, okay. So um, 
I think the on the women's side, the, the strongest teams are likely to be obviously the USA. They also haven't lost a, a team competition since I think 2010. Um, so they've really dominated the sport over the, the more than 10 years. Uh, but they'll be kind of pushed by probably the Russian team and and the Chinese. And uh, gymnasts from both of those countries will challenge in the all-round final as well, especially uh, Russian gymnast named Angelina Malnikova is probably uh, in the running. Um, on the men's side, I think the, the competition tends to be a little bit more, a little bit closer actually, but Russia, Japan, and, and China should, should dominate those, those team competition again, the Russian, uh, world champion, uh, Nikita Nagorny could probably be the favorite there. Um, but especially in the team competition where, you know, three athletes compete on each event for each country, but all three scores will count. So any mistake they make can have a, a massive impact and surprises. We often see surprises in the team competitions. Last last World Championships, the women's Italian team uh, managed to get a, a third place. So Italy, France in the women's side, uh, USA and Great Britain on the men's side could challenge for those positions. Um, oh, I think maybe one definitely don't miss is Kohai Uchimura, the Japanese gymnast. Um, if Simone Biles hadn't come along, I think, you know, we'd, we'd still be talking about Kohai Uchimura. He's, <laughs> uh, you know, exceptional uh, Japanese gymnast, won the 2012 and 2016 Olympics all around and every single world championships in between. Um, but I think he's only, only choosing to compete on the high bar this time around. But he's a, you know, he's a legend in Japan as well. So also feels very sorry for him that there's no spectators in the, in the competition. So this is the first time actually that we've mentioned men's gymnastics because yes, there is also one of those. And just to go very far back to basics, the apparatus are somewhat overlapping, but there are certain apparatus that only men and only women do. Maybe just quickly touch on those. Yeah, so unique to men is. So the ones that are overlapping uh, would be vault and floor exercise. So the men and mm -hmm. women both do that. Um, and then where the women have beam and uneven bars, so that's their, their four. The men have six apparatus in to total, the other ones being pommel horse, rings, parallel bars, and the high bar. Right. And on, on the issue of the men, I gather they tend to be older. Uh, you've just mentioned the Japanese gymnast who's in his third game. So, I mean, I'm putting him in his late 20s, I would imagine. So the men's age will be older. And is, yeah, is that, I think is that just he's because... in late 20s. I'm not 100% sure of his age, but yes, definitely his third games. And I think that, you know, average, the men will probably be around 24, 25 on average. Um, always has been And that again is because, older. yeah, the, the, men's, the men's disciplines are really just pure athleticism. It's, uh, you talk about explosive power, some of the... Some of the things you'll see there are remarkable. And strength. Like if yeah. you watch the rings, I mean, the, the, when they do the, is it the Iron Cross and all those things, it's just, <laughs> I mean, they'll make your eyes water thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. So the, the two that are like most unique, you know, parallel bars and high bar, you can kind of see there's some some crossover to what the women do on uneven bars. But on, on, on the men's side, the, the rings and the pommel horse, I mean, they're just 100% upper body strength. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah, so impressive things going on there as well. Just... Sort of on that, uh, technology and gymnastics, um, I'd imagine there's a direct effect in terms of some of the apparatus. I, I can't see beam and rings changing from the ancient Olympics, well, not the ancient, but the original Olympics. But like the floor is certainly different. The vault seems to be different. That that must have enabled 
certain things to evolve? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, like obviously, yes, the floors become more sprung over time, but that hasn't changed a lot in, you know, 20 years or so. The mm. ones that have changed a lot is the vault. So if you, I mean, people, um, people probably, I don't know, my age, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s might remember their old school hall days and the vaulting horse that used to be there. You know, it was kind of a, a long, narrow yes. narrow <laughs> thing. And and that was the, the vault horse um, for, you know, Olympic gymnastics right up until 2003, I think it was. Um, wow. And now, yeah. you'll, if you watch now, it's kind of, it's called, it's now called vault table. It's a much longer, broader surface. It's, it's quite sprung. So that has definitely contributed to uh, improvements in vault performance. It's a lot uh, easy, a lot less risky to do these, especially the backward entry uh, movements, the Yurchenko vaults that you'll see, a, especially a lot of women do. Um, so, so that's definitely one technological change that's happened. I think for me, the other big one is the uneven bars on the women's side. Um, and do yourself a favor, like just look up YouTube videos about the evolution of uneven bars. And you go back to the fifties where women were literally, you know, standing on the low bar, hands on the high bar, doing these like static arabesque poses and things <laughs> and how that progressed to where you watch the 60s and 70s where you would hold the high bar and your hips would literally like your legs would flip around the low bar wrap but your hips bounce up again and gradually the bars um, became kind of more flexible in terms of the the give um, which is one thing but mainly became wider and wider distance between the high and the low bar and now you see these you know release moves traveling from high to low and low to high um, and, I, and I actually think that, that Anima Bars has been, you know, the most profound change in, in the standard over the last 20 years. You mentioned just now Ross um, Svetlana Korkina, who was a you know, top, she won the Olympics in, in 96, I think, on bars, maybe mm. 2000 as well, and had, you know, a couple of skills named after on bars. One was this one, it, it's sort of a release move from the low bar to the high bar with a half turn, very complex. And at the time, it was like, mind-blowing that anybody could even think of trying to do this and now literally every 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 woman in the competition will be doing some variation of that um some with with more twists and uh yeah so that's that that event has really changed it's it's cool to watch some of the creative stuff they come up with and connect uh on on uneven bars and then on the indirect side of technology, I mean, you spoke earlier about how you learn skills using a variety of supportive aids. That's technology as well, enabling it. But I wondered if they, do they use uh, slow motion replay biomechanical analysis in their development of these skills? Or is gymnastics still a, in a sense, a rudimentary sport where you feel your way towards a new skill? Or is it actually quite technically, physically planned? Yes, I think some do and some don't use sort of that, that video replay approach. Um, but it, it is it is very much about feel for the gymnast. And you say rudimentary, but, you know, that is in essence what 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 you need to do um, to perform the skill. So so the feel of, of learning the skill and executing the skill is, is fundamental. Some athletes benefit from, you know, seeing seeing their, their movements patterns and execution and, and their errors and then incorporating that into their, their you know, their, their corrections um, and some don't. So that's, that's also a really interesting part of the coaching process. Um, you know, my approach with, and this is sort of generic across multiple sports is that if I now wear, wear my biomechanist hat, you know, I would look, 
at the video and, and do the analysis. I'd look at a thousand different things. I would then you know, talk to the coach about a, a very distilled list of one or two of those things that I know that they, um, you know, they emphasize and could intervene on. And then ultimately the coach will decide how they want to communicate that to the athlete. They're the, they're the person that's best placed to do that. And they'll, they'll either say, okay, yeah, I'm going to give them this cue um, or I'm going to show them this clip or we're just going to do this drill um, so that to get the, to get, get those corrections across. Mm. Okay. So then my, my last question is sort of related to this technology and advancement you alluded to. If someone, let's say Simone Biles, decided in Tokyo that she was going to pay homage to Nadia Comaneci from 1976, I think I said 72 earlier, actually, so I'm correcting myself. It was 76. And Simone Biles goes out in Tokyo and executes the exact routine that Comaneci did in 76. What would she score? <laughs> Do you know? Like, I mean, has anyone That's ever a said, good anyone ever said, like, actually, you, you, there's no doubt she'd come last. But yeah. I wonder by how much. Yeah, I think. I don't actually think she'd meet the minimum requirement. I was talking earlier about those, you know, you have to have a certain number of <laughs> yeah. the skill and that skill. Uh, I don't know. I actually watched that Nadia routine the other day because it was the 45th anniversary or something. It was on. Right. right. Um, yeah. And at the time that, you know, what she was doing on bars was, was quite revolutionary. But uh, I don't know. Let me get back to you. I'm going to I'm going to ask a, a judge <laughs> friend to score it and I'll let you know. That's a brilliant cool. question. Yeah. Helen Bain, I tell you, if I had a, if I had a graph which would show the exponential uh, amount of I've learned about gymnastics in the last uh, 50 minutes, it would be a very, very steep curve. So thank you very much for your time. It's been amazing. And I, I certainly will watch the Olympic Games gymnastics with a, a lot more knowledge about what I'm watching. But so, so thank you very much for your time. If you want to catch up with uh, Helen, she's got a great looking website, Helen. I have to tell you, it's a very impressive website. HelenBain.com, B-A-Y-N-E is the site. There's a lovely picture of you on there all sorts of research interests and uh, if you're interested in that side of gymnastics um, or anything else that Helen does and she's got a very wide ranging list of things that she does but uh, yeah thank you very much for your time Helen cool thanks a lot it's been fun thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports and on instagram at science of sport podcast mm-hmm.